Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor John Rasmussen at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Grace, mercy, and peace to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and open up our Romans journals to uh, Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish chapter 11, which marks a pretty big transition for us in the letter of Paul to the Romans. Uh, Really, we're going to be transitioning um, from Paul taking a look at the the mighty salvation God has worked for us, uh, Romans 1 through 11, and in chapter 12 and following, Uh, we're kind of going to look at, well, okay, now what? Now that we have been saved, now that we've been justified, now that we've been included into God's family, uh, now what? Uh, So we'll take a look at that next week as we continue with chapter 12. Uh, But we are about three-quarters of the way through Romans, and today Paul is going to show us the proper response to the gospel uh, that he's laid out in Romans. So we're going to read the text here, and uh, we're going to be going from chapter 11, verse 25, to the end of the chapter, verse 36. And as we read through this, uh, the first part really kind of deals with themes that we treated last week. And if you have questions about that, if you want to know more about that, uh, go ahead and go to Bible study today. Uh, James, our uh, DCE James Hayes is going to be leading Bible study today, and we, we had a chance to chat about Romans quite a bit this past week, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. So be sure to go to Bible study back in the overflow room. We're going to focus more on uh, verses 30 through 36, uh, where Paul gives us really a summary of all of Romans in verse 32, and then he's going to show us a proper response. Now, I want you to be Uh, looking for that proper response to the gospel as we see it laid out in those latter verses. So Romans 11, starting at verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
So that's our text today, and uh, so the question today is, what is the proper response to everything we've heard thus far in Romans? What is the proper response to the gospel that Paul has laid out in great detail in all 11 chapters? Now, if you were to say something like faith, that's a good answer because that's what the gospel evokes in us. It provokes faith that we would be attached to God in a loving, trusting relationship in which we receive from him all of the goodness he's given us through Jesus. Uh, That's a good answer, but um, it's not the only response. Uh, You could say, well, maybe the response is that I would devote my life to God, that I give my life over to his service in everything that I do all the way through the week. And that's a good answer too. In fact, that's the answer Paul's going to get at next week. For example, if you look ahead a little bit in chapter two, or 12, rather, Paul says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so next week and in the following weeks, we'll see that the gospel really does invite us into this pouring out of our lives in service to other people, that we would not be conformed anymore to this world, but be conformed to Christ. But today, as Paul wraps up chapter 11, did you notice what his response is? I imagine that Paul's first response is silence. He's just like in awe. And then we see that Paul breaks out into worship. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. And here he breaks out into this doxology. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Here Paul shows us that the proper response to beholding the whole plan of salvation laid out in Romans is to worship, to be struck with awe and wonder and worship. We've talked about Romans a little bit as sort of a hike. Do you remember that? Uh, Think way back to January as we began Romans, we talked about it as a hike. Remember chapter one, we're kind of in the parking lot looking at the map. Paul says, here's where we're going to go. We're going to hear about the gospel, the righteousness of God uh, that, that will save us and bring salvation to us. Uh, we went down into that deep valley, right, of chapters one, two, and three, where we heard about the depths of our sin and our brokenness, and then we went up that really high mountain where we learned about how God has made us righteous with himself through Christ, through his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and through faith, we are now justified or declared righteous in a right relationship with God. And so now our lives are oriented towards hope, towards the hope of future glory and the promise that God will will renew and heal all things in this creation. Uh, In chapters 9, 10, and 11, we looked at this even greater mystery. It's like we went up another mountain peak taking a look at how God in his grace and his mercy has not only saved the disobedient Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, 
He not only rescued them out of their futility of idolatry and, and, and their paganism, but he has even reached out to save those who had, by and large, rejected him, his own people, the people of Israel. We've seen how God has taken those Gentiles, those wild olive branches, and cultivated them into what is now a beautiful tree made up of Jew and Gentile, as you might see on the cover if you remembered last week that image that Paul gives us of the olive tree. And so now Paul is standing at the top of this mountain summit, and he's looking out at this big, beautiful gospel, and he marvels, and he worships. He marvels because God, who is completely righteous, has saved unrighteous people in a righteous way. God has held court as a perfectly fair, just, and equitable judge, and yet he has declared not guilty people, or rather guilty people, to be not guilty. Paul looks out at this, and he marvels. He's struck with awe and with worship. Look with me at verse 32. Let's go ahead and read that together, verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I want to talk about that verse a little bit because it's that verse that really kind of leads Paul into worshiping and praising God. In fact, this verse summarizes the whole book of Romans, really. Everything that Paul has said from Romans chapter 1 up until now is summarized in verse 32. Let's look first at the first part. For God has consigned all to disobedience. That's really what chapters 1, 2, and 3 were about, as we saw that Jew and Gentile alike are all guilty under the power of sin and unable to save themselves, not even by their own works or the power of the law, right? That is God consigning all to disobedience. It's a really interesting word in Greek. Uh, this word in the ancient world had the idea of an army surrounding a city and locking it up, sort of like um, laying siege to a city so that nobody could come in or come out until everybody just surrenders. And, and so what Paul means by this word consigned is that God has, God's got us surrounded, right? So that we might put our hands up and say, I surrender. It's kind of like if you've ever watched a movie or a TV show where you have uh, the police are after the bad guy, you know? And the bad guy's running, he's running through alleys, he's climbing up on dumpsters, climbing up, you know, jumping over walls and fences, trying to get away from law enforcement, trying to catch him. And then eventually you get to the point where it's the end of the road because you went down the wrong alley. The wall is too high, there's no way to climb, and you have to put your hands up and surrender. It's the end of the road. That's really what we have uh, communicated in this word, uh, consigned all to disobedience. It doesn't mean that God led people into disobedience. It means that back in chapter 1, remember that God handed people over to their sins so that they might experience the consequences of them. God has done that to both Jew and Gentile so that both Jew and Gentile would raise their hands Cornered by God, surrounded by God, would say, you got me. I surrender. 
your law convicts me and condemns me as a sinner worthy of judgment and wrath. You got me. But notice that's not all that God does, right? Um, it says that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So imagine this bad guy in the proverbial movie, you know, running and getting caught, getting cornered and throwing his hands up and saying, I surrender. Imagine that he's not arrested, but acquitted. Not arrested, but acquitted. That is what it means that God consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Is that God's purpose in finding us and tracking us down and cornering us with his law is not to destroy us or hurt us, but that we might throw our hands up and surrender, that we might be acquitted and forgiven and adopted into his family as his beloved children. Friends, that's something to worship about, right? That's why we get here together and we worship and we sing and we pray and we praise and we have fellowship with other Christians is because God has done this wonderful thing for us. That he has had mercy upon us. And the logical thing, the proper response is to worship. Now, question to ponder is, is that how we always respond to the gospel? Do we respond to everything that we've learned in Romans with awestruck wonder and worship, or do we sometimes just kind of do this and say, okay, great. Um, how do we respond to this gospel? Do we respond with awestruck wonder and worship and awe or perhaps maybe our hearts are too tangled up in other things that they might even become numb to the great reality of who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel. Perhaps our worship is dampened by idolatry, dampened by apathy, complacency, and just too many other things that numb our affections. Perhaps our worship is smothered, right? because we have this culture of consumerism where we think first and foremost, not about God's glory or worship, but did this experience benefit me, right? I was uh, reading an article a while back ago that was talking about the national parks and some of the artwork associated with national parks. Maybe you've seen uh, national park posters uh, that kind of just lay out the, the beauty and the glory of what the national parks are. I was reading this article about this woman who has made it her goal to uh, put together posters for the national parks based on one-star reviews that the national parks re received online. So rather than, you know, seeing the Grand Canyon and giving it five stars, some people went to the Grand Canyon and they gave it one star. <laughs> As you can imagine that. I'll just share with you a couple examples because they're kind of humorous. Um, sad and humorous at the same time. Uh, so if you were to, anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. I still haven't been there. Probably someday. But if you've ever seen that kind of a view, what is the proper logical response to seeing something like that? Maybe you might just get really quiet or 
You might just sit there in silence for a while, but eventually you're going to say, wow, right? I mean, you're going to be struck with awe and wonder and amazement, right? Somebody went to the Grand Canyon and they said, it's a hole, a very, very large hole. <laughs> Not impressed, right? Uh, anybody ever been to, seen this scene? Which, what's this? Right, yep. And what's the proper response to this? Wow, <laughs> praise God, right? Maybe even break out into the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, somebody didn't think so. They said, the trees block the view and there are too many gray rocks. <laughs> it's kind of a Debbie Downer, right? Uh, anybody know this one? I think it's on Lake Superior. Isle Royale, yeah. Anybody been there? Couple people? Wow, breathtaking, right? Beautiful. But there's no cell service and there's terrible Wi-Fi. It's <laughs> trying to check Instagram, but uh, come on. Um, now, I share these with you uh, because I think it reflects something sad about the human heart is that we can experience beauty, we can experience breathtaking wonder, and sometimes we can say, so, <laughs> right? Sometimes we can be not moved by it. And one of the concerns that I have in our culture, in our society, is there's so many ways in which our hearts can be numbed and over-entertained and overfed and just like smothered with so many different things. Like our culture just gets us tangled up into this narrative where we think I have to be busy all the time and I just have to keep doing all these things and I have to keep buying these things and I have to keep watching these things and being entertained and scrolling on the screen and noise everywhere that sometimes it can deafen our ears and it can blind our eyes to the beauty of the gospel so that we would not respond with awestruck wonder and worship, not only to creation, but especially the gospel. But we'd just be kind of like, okay, what's next? Um, one of the things I've noticed, and I've noticed it in myself, and you might notice it in yourself too, which is a great opportunity to repent, right? Is I've noticed that sometimes in the church, because we live in a culture of consumerism, we can sometimes have a consumerism approach to worship. So rather than gathering for worship and being like, I'm just glad to be here. Like, I get to hear God's word. I get to hear about a God who loves me and gave his son for me. I get to be with other Christians. Rather than that, we might say, yeah, I didn't really like the hymns that much. Didn't know any of them. Or we might say, yeah, they were out of donuts when I got there. Or we might say, yeah, I didn't really follow the sermon. It was a little too long. Um, um, right? Sometimes we can have that consumeristic attitude 
to the body of Christ and, and our response to the gospel. Um, or sometimes we might just be so weighed down with other things that we're just pulled in all these other directions so that worship becomes just another extracurricular activity that might get crowded out, especially during the summer, and our hearts become insensitive to something that our hearts were designed to just be absolutely overwhelmed with. So what's the solution to all of this? Do you know what the solution is to apathy? Do you know what the solution is to apathy about the gospel? It's more gospel. <laughs> the gospel is the only thing that can heal our apathy when we're apathetic about God's word, when we're apathetic about Christ. Um, and really, I think it's when you read yourself into verse 32. God has consigned me, locked me up, surrounded and caught me in my disobedience to the point that I threw up my hands and said, you got me, I surrender, so that he might have mercy upon me in particular. That's what heals our apathy. When you realize that verse 32 in all of Romans isn't just an idea, but it's something that God has done for you in particular. When we come and we behold the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that our disobedience led to his death, but we see that his death led to God having mercy upon us, a mercy that God planned and predestined for us from the very beginning of the world. And when you see yourself in that cross, in that gospel, it begins to heal your apathy. That's why if you ever go to church and you say, I didn't get anything out of it, well, just come next week. <laughs> and then maybe gradually your heart will begin to soften. Or if you read the Bible and say, I didn't really feel anything when I read it. Didn't get the feelings, you know. You know what you should do? Just keep reading it, right? And God continues to heal your apathy and your consumeristic attitude towards the church and his word and the body of Christ. When you realize that I was consigned to disobedience, but that God caught up with me, cornered me, found me, and has had mercy on me, that changes everything. And so let's just look very briefly at these verses here, what Paul's saying in 34, 35, and 36, because it shows us the richness and, richness and the depth of our salvation. For verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Listen, God didn't need any help saving you. He didn't need the advice of humanity. He didn't need an outside source or a, a consultant to help him save the world. But, but Paul is reveling over the, the, the mighty wisdom and counsel of God that would work our salvation. God has taken a complicated situation, meaning that he's made a good creation, and it's fallen into sin, and he's a just and a holy God, and he must punish sin, and yet he loves his creation, and he's made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How will God save the people of Abraham and save the Gentiles as well and yet remain faithful to his own justice? That's what Romans is about, and nobody helped God figure that out. Nobody was his counselor. Nobody 
gave him advice. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Even if you were to labor in service to God your whole entire life, even in eternity, you would never even begin to pay God back for what he's given you in Christ. You can't, you can't pay him back. You can't ever give God something that would make him in your debt so that he owes you anything. But he's given you everything, even when you gave him nothing. That's something to worship about, right? To revel in. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. As we just sang in our hymn, what Paul's saying is that our salvation is from him. It's from God. It's been purposed for us, predestined for us. It's through him, meaning it's through his sending of his son, the incarnate Christ, coming and living and suffering and dying for us. It's through him and him alone that we are saved, not through the law, not through our efforts, not through our giving our best or giving our all. It's through him. And because our salvation is from him and through him, it's also to him that we've been saved for him. Like Luther says in the small catechism, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom, right? And so Paul ends with these words, to him be glory forever, soli deo gloria, as we say, to God alone be the glory for such a wonderful salvation. The salvation that God has given us is more than enough to motivate our worship and heal our complacency now, and it actually requires an eternity to even begin to do justice to what God has done for us. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.